Chapter Fourteen The Ordeal of Richard Feverell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Ordeal of Richard Feverell by George Meredith. Chapter Fourteen. All night Richard tossed on his bed with his heart in a rapid canter, and his brain bestriding it, traversing the rich untasted world, and the great realm of mystery, from which he was now restrained no longer. Months he had wandered about the gates of the bonnet, wondering, sighing, knocking at them, and getting neither admittance nor answer. He had the key now, his own father had given it to him. His heart was a lightning steed, and bore him on and on, over limitless regions bathed in superhuman beauty and strangeness, where cavaliers and ladies leaned whispering upon close green swords, and knights and ladies cast a splendor upon savage forests, and tilts and tourneys were held in golden courts lit to a glorious day by ladies' eyes, one pair of which, dimly visioned, constantly distinguishable, followed him through the boscage and dwelt upon him in the press, beaming while he bent above a hand glittering white and fragrant as the frosted blossom of a May night. A while the heart would pause and flutter to a shock, he was in the act of consummating all earthly bliss by pressing his lips to the small white hand. Only to do that and die, cried the magnetic youth, to fling the jewel of life into that one cup and drink it off. He was intoxicated by anticipation. For that he was born. There was, then, some end in existence, something to live for, to kiss a woman's hand and die. He would leap from the couch and rush to pen and paper to relieve his swarming sensations. Scarce was he seated when the pen was dashed aside, the paper sent flying with the exclamation, Have I not sworn I would never write again? Sir Austin had shut that safety valve. The nonsense that was in the youth might have poured harmlessly out, and its urgency for ebullition was so great that he was repeatedly oblivious of his oath and found himself seated under the lamp in the act of composition before pride could speak a word. Possibly the pride even of Richard Feverell had been swamped if the act of composition were easy at such a time, and a single idea could stand clearly foremost— but myriads were demanding the first place. Chaotic hosts, like ranks of stormy billows, pressed impetuously for expression, and despair of reducing them to form, quite as much as pride, to which it pleased him to refer his incapacity, threw down the powerless pen, and sent him panting to his outstretched length, and another headlong career through the rosy-girdled land. Toward morning, the madness of the fever abated somewhat, and he went forth into the air. A lamp was still burning in his father's room, and Richard thought, as he looked up, 
that he saw the ever-vigilant head on the watch. Instantly the lamp was extinguished. The window stood cold against the hues of dawn. Strong pulling is an excellent medical remedy for certain classes of fever. Richard took to it instinctively. The clear fresh water, burnished with sunrise, sparkled against his arrowy prow. The soft deep shadows curled smiling away from his gliding keel. Overhead, solitary morning unfolded itself, from blossom to bud, from bud to flower, still delicious changes of light and color, to whose influences he was heedless as he shot under willows and aspens, and across sheets of river reaches, pure mirrors to the upper glory, himself the sole tenant of the stream. Somewhere at the founts of the world lay the land he was rowing toward. Something of its shadowed lights might be discerned here and there. It was not a dream, now he knew. There was a secret abroad. The woods were full of it, the waters rolled with it, and the winds. Oh, why could not one in these days do some high knightly deed which should draw down ladies' eyes from their heaven, as in the days of Arthur? To such a meaning breathed the unconscious sighs of the youth when he had pulled through his first feverish energy. He was off Bursley and had lapsed a little into that musing quietude which follows strenuous exercise when he heard a hail and his own name called. It was no lady, no fairy, but young Ralph Morton, an eruption of miserable masculine prose. Heartily wishing him a bed with the rest of mankind, Richard rowed in and jumped ashore. Ralph immediately seized his arm, saying that he desired earnestly to have a talk with him, and dragged the magnetic youth from his water dreams up and down the wet-mown grass. That he had to say seemed to be difficult of utterance, and Richard, though he barely listened, soon had enough of his old rival's gladness at seeing him, and exhibited signs of impatience, whereat Ralph, as one who branches into matter somewhat foreign to his mind, but of great human interest and importance, put the question to him, I say, what woman's name do you like best? I don't know any, quoth Richard indifferently. Why are you out so early? In answer to this, Ralph suggested that the name of Mary might be considered a pretty name. Richard agreed that it might be, the housekeeper at Raynham, half the women cooks, and all the housemaids enjoyed that name. The name of Mary was equivalent for women at home. "'Yes, I know,' said Ralph. "'We have lots of Marys. It's so common. Oh, I don't like Mary best. What do you think?' Richard thought it just like another. "'Do you know,' Ralph continued, throwing off the mask and plunging into the subject, "'I'd do anything on earth for some names, one or two. "'It's not Mary, nor Lucy. "'Clarinda's pretty, but it's like a novel. "'Clarabelle I like. "'Names beginning with C.L. I prefer. "'The C.L.'s are always gentle and lovely girls you would die for. "'Don't you think so?' "'Richard had never been acquainted with any of them to inspire that emotion. "'Indeed, these urgent appeals to his fancy in feminine names at five o'clock in the morning slightly surprised him. 
though he was but half awake to the outer world. By degrees he perceived that Ralph was changed. Instead of the lusty, boisterous boy, his rival in manly sciences, who spoke straightforwardly and acted up to his speech, here was an abashed and blush-persecuted youth, who sued piteously for a friendly ear wherein to pour the one idea possessing him. Gradually, too, Richard apprehended that Ralph, likewise, was on the frontiers of the realm of mystery, perhaps further toward it than he himself was, and then, as by a sympathetic stroke, was revealed to him the wonderful beauty and depth of meaning in feminine names. The theme appeared novel and delicious, fitted to the season and the hour. But the hardship was that Richard could choose none from the number, all were the same to him. He loved them all. "'Don't you really prefer the CLs?' said Ralph persuasively. "'Not better than the names ending in A or Y,' Richard replied, wishing he could, for Ralph was evidently ahead of him. "'Come under these trees,' said Ralph. And under the trees Ralph unbosomed. His name was down for the army. Eaton was quitted forever.' In a few months he would have to join his regiment, and before he left he must say good-bye to his friends. Would Richard tell him Mrs. Forey's address? He had heard she was somewhere by the sea. Richard did not remember the address, but said he would willingly take charge of any letter and forward it. Ralph dived his hand into his pocket. Here it is, but don't let anybody see it. My aunt's name is not Claire, said Richard perusing what was composed of the exterior formula. You've addressed it to Claire herself. That was plain to see. Emmeline Clementina Matilda Laura, Countess Blandish, Richard continued in a low tone, transferring the names and playing on the musical strings they were to him. Then he said, Names of ladies, how they sweeten their names. He fixed his eyes on Ralph. If he discovered anything further, he said nothing, but bade the good fellow good-bye, jumped into his boat, and pulled down the tide. The moment Ralph was hidden by an abutment of the banks, Richard perused the address. For the first time it struck him that his cousin Claire was a very charming creature. He remembered the look of her eyes, and especially the last reproachful glance she gave him at parting. What business had Ralph to write to her? Did she not belong to Richard Feverell? He read the words again and again. Claire Doria Forey. Why, Claire was the name he liked best. Nay, he loved it. Doria, too. She shared his own name with him. Away went his heart, not at a canter now, at a gallop, as one who sights the quarry. He felt too weak to pull. Claire Doria Forey. Oh, perfect melody! Sliding with the tide, he heard it fluting in the bosom of the hills. When nature has made us ripe for love, it seldom occurs that the fates are behindhand in furnishing a temple for the flame. Above green flashing plunges of a weir, and shaken by the thunder below, lilies, golden and white, were swaying at anchor among the reeds. Meadow-sweet hung from the banks thick with weed and trailing bramble, and there also hung a daughter of earth. 
Her face was shaded by a broad straw hat with a flexible brim that left her lips and chin in the sun, and, sometimes nodding, sent forth a light of promising eyes. Across her shoulders and behind flowed large loose curls brown in shadow, almost golden where the ray touched them. She was simply dressed, befitting decency and the season. On a closer inspection you might see that her lips were stained. This blooming young person was regaling on dewberries. They grew between the bank and the water. Apparently she found the fruit abundant, for her hand was making pretty progress to her mouth. Fastidious youth, which revolts at woman plumping her exquisite proportions on bread and butter, and would, we must suppose, joyfully have her scraggy to have her poetical, can hardly object to dewberries. Indeed, the act of eating them is dainty and induces musing. The dewberry is a sister to the lotus and an innocent sister. You eat, mouth, eye, and hand are occupied, and the undrugged mind free to roam. And so it was with the damsel who knelt there. The little skylark went up above her, all song, to the smooth southern cloud lying along the blue. From a dewy copse, dark above her nodding hat, the blackbird fluted, calling to her with thrice mellow note. The kingfisher flashed emerald out of green osiers. A bow-winged heron traveled aloft. Seeking solitude, a boat slipped toward her, containing a dreamy youth. And still she plucked the fruit, and ate, and mused, as if no fairy prince were invading her territories, and as if she wished not for one, or knew not her wishes. Surrounded by the green-shaven meadows, the pastoral summer buzz, the weir falls thundering white, amid the breath and beauty of wild flowers, she was a bit of lovely human life in a fair setting, a terrible attraction." The magnetic youth leaned round to note his proximity to the weir piles, and beheld the sweet vision. Stiller and stiller grew nature, as at the meeting of two electric clouds. Her posture was so graceful that though he was making straight for the weir, he dared not dip a skull. Just then, one enticing dewberry caught her eyes. He was floating by unheeded, and saw that her hand stretched low, and could not gather what it sought. A stroke from his right brought him beside her. The damsel glanced up dismayed, and her whole shape trembled over the brink. Richard sprang from his boat into the water, pressing a hand beneath her foot, which she had thrust against the crumbling wet sides of the bank to save herself, he enabled her to recover her balance and gain safe earth, whither he followed her. End of chapter 14